All right, let us get started, everyone. Welcome. I hope you had a good lunch. This was good today. Mac and cheese and green beans. Yeah, A plus for sure. Remember, um, the, the bucket here, this is for uh, donations. This goes straight to the people in the back that bring us this food. So I don't get any of it. Ruth Chris doesn't get any of it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, be sure to um, just, just give us, Ray, but we want to generously bless uh, the people that serve us each week. And that's exactly what that tip jar is for. That's what it is. It's for tips. And so um, I don't have my watch today, so I need somebody at 12 or at 1 o'clock on the dot. I need somebody to say, hey, you know, it's time to go. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm going to try to wrap it up just in time. We're in Deuteronomy 21 this week, and we're, we're back in. We took a little break last week. I was in the process of moving, and so we looked at last week just a, in, in general why we study and interpret the Old Testament law and the purpose that it has and, and what we're to do from it, because now we're going to move into the section in Deuteronomy that has some laws that some of them, um, we, don't, we don't know the purpose, honestly. I mean, we, we don't know exactly in the next coming chapters some of the things we don't know the significance of the symbols or of the imagery or of the reasons for some of the laws. So we're getting into, we're getting into some dense territory in Deuteronomy in these next this week and next week and we're also getting into some material that's so culturally removed from where we are that the tendency is for people to either look at it and go oh well this is so stupid how could anybody ever think this is divine you know why would God ever command such a thing or the other uh, end of the spectrum is to look at it and go okay well we we need to figure out a way to do this in our society today and in reality, neither of those options is correct. What we have to remember is God is giving Israel law for Israel's existence in the ancient Near East, in the cultures that Israel was surrounded by. So not all of the laws are going to transfer over into the New Covenant because we are not Israel in the ancient Near East, surrounded by ancient Near East cultures. And so the Bible is very... <clears throat> we have to be aware of, of making the Bible this abstract... Um, just a set of guidelines for life. It's not. It's not God's instruction manual. It's not. Okay, The Bible is the story of a God who's related to His people throughout epics in human history. It's a story. It's not a guidebook. It's not a handbook. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. This is why you'll never see me making a big deal about putting a statue of the Ten Commandments anywhere. Because that's just a tiny snippet of the beginning of the covenant that God made with Israel that can't be extrapolated out into this for all time thing. And Jesus Himself even said this in the Gospels. He talked about the law, one of the laws that we're going to come to. The Pharisees asked Him, hey, why did Moses say to divorce your wife? And Jesus is going to give one of the most astounding statements in the New Testament. He said, Moses allowed for divorce because of your hardness of hearts, but that's not what God intended from the beginning. And he pointed back to Genesis and to the intention of one man, one woman, for life, marriage. And so Jesus candidly, openly stating that the Torah laws were not the pinnacle of God's desire for His people for all time. They were a concession 
to His people in the period of history where His people were living at the time, and because God knew that He was dwelling in the midst of a sinful people in a fallen world, and He was taking them on a journey to redeem them out of the world. To do, we've talked about this before, the, the hermeneutical, the redemptive trajectory of Scripture. We see God entering into a culture and leading the people to a higher ethic, but starting from within that culture. So God makes concessions to things in Genesis, to things like incest, where He made concession to the fact that Abraham married his half-sister. And He brought him out. And then by the time we get to this era, after the patriarchs, God codifies in the law, we saw in Leviticus, okay, incest, no longer acceptable, Israel. So he brought them to a place where what was allowed before, what was tolerated before, was now condemned. And that's what happens in the New Testament. A lot of the things that were allowed in the Old Testament, such as divorce for various reasons, not having to do with uh, infidelity. God allowed certain things for a time, but then in the New Testament we see Jesus raising the ethic even higher. And so it's, there's this course that you go, as you go from Old Testament to New Testament, you see the stakes being raised, not lowered. So when we're reading the Old Testament, you again, you have to see this is not the, the pinnacle of God's commands and desires for His people for all time. It's concessions to His people where they are with a notion that He is leading them to a better place. And in, in contrast to the surrounding cultures, even the stuff that bothers us by the standards of that day, was wildly progressive. We see that everywhere in Old Testament and in New Testament, in things that we look back at and we go, oh, that's so, you know, that, that's beneath the ethic of Jesus, or that's how could anybody allow that? But you put yourself in the world at the time, take away your post Enlightenment, Western, Euro American assumptions, and you look at that and go, that's, that's crazy. Why would you ever allow such a, a, a thing? Uh, to happen in the first place. This is how we do it here. And you see God pulling against culture. God's always been countercultural without being against all culture. And it's a hard distinction to maintain, but we see it in God's laws to Israel here in chapter 21. So, last chapter, chapter 20, talked about uh, the issues of crime in Israel and then issues of war. Chapter 21 is going to do the exact same thing. It's going to start with an issue of crime and then it's going to move into an issue of war. But all around the theme of the value of human life and protection for the weaker of the two parties involved. So Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Deuteronomy 21, it picks up, and this may seem random for where, what we're reading, but if you remember, if you were with us last year in Numbers, at the end of the year, in Numbers 35, so almost the very end of Numbers, we read the following statement, and most of you probably don't remember exactly. When I say Numbers 35, that didn't just go, ah, yeah, that old familiar passage. So I'll jump back just so you can see what I'm talking about. In Numbers 35, there was a section on capital punishment and, uh, and manslaughter and murder. And God emphasized, after talking about cities of refuge, where people who accidentally take a life could flee, then he emphasized that there is no covering, no uh, protection for people who intentionally took a life. And so God always maintained the difference between uh, manslaughter and murder. But back in Numbers 35, verse uh, 33, it said, Do not pollute the land where you are, 
bloodshed pollutes the land. And atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So God's stipulation for His people in the land He was taking them, He says, look, this is, this is the land. My land. And this land is holy and sacred. And in this land, if somebody intentionally takes life, there is no payment that can be made except that person forfeiting their life. Because, ironically, of how much I value life. And so He instituted capital punishment in the land, in Israel at the time, and He gave stipulations. It had to be two or three witnesses. Couldn't put anybody to death unless there were two or three eyewitnesses. Uh, it had to be thoroughly examined, so you couldn't just throw this thing around. It was very, very serious. But if somebody was established as guilty on the lives of two witnesses, witnesses were willing to pledge their own life saying, I saw it happen, that person did it. Then that's when this punishment would be carried out. But God says, do not defile, verse 34, do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. There's a principle He established. This is not just in Israel during the, the, the Sinai covenant. Israel wasn't just like any other piece of geography. It was where God Himself dwelled in the midst of His people in the tabernacle and later the temple. And so death, remember back two years ago, those of you who were here to Leviticus, remember the theme of Leviticus? Death and anything that symbolizes death is co directly contrary to God's holiness because God's holiness is life and love. So anything having to do with death, whether it was like skin diseases we talked about that made you kind of look like a corpse or whether it was a death of an animal in the field or a death of a person, anything having to do with death was an affront to the holiness of God. And God was establishing His holiness in the midst of Israel. And that's, that was a huge, this whole thing is an object lesson. It's a visual object lesson to get Israel to see how much God, the author of life, values all life. So when we read passages that have to do with taking life, we have to read it in that context first before we start to get all squeamish and uncomfortable. Because we have to establish first that this is a God who abhors the taking of innocent life to the degree that it, will, it pollutes the land. Back in Genesis, way back in Genesis 6, before the flood, the land was filled with murder and bloodshed. Those of you who were here five years ago, you remember this. The land was filled with murder and bloodshed to the point where God says humanity has ruined itself upon the land, so I am going to now ruin the land by sending the flood and washing humanity and all of its defilement from the land. That was the theme of the flood. So this theme has been again, like bouncing through all of Torah from Genesis to where we are now that, that bloodshed defiles. And not just the person that does it, but the land itself in some way. And so then, having looked at all of that, now then, when we read Deuteronomy 21, it says, if a man is found slain, pierced, killed, uh, lying in a field, in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, now we have a problem. Somebody has been killed. They did not accidentally die. The verb is, means like, like run through or pierced or, or stabbed or slain. This is an actual murder. And they don't know who did it. There's no witness. It's, in the, it's, it's just out somewhere in the land. What do you do? 
the bloodshed defiles the land. There has been bloodshed. There must be atonement. What happens now? And so here is the ritual that God prescribed Israel to do to, to emphasize this theme that this is not just something that you go, oh, well, the guy died out in the field, no big deal. No, it was a, it was, it was an, a monumental occasion when someone was killed. And so there was something that the whole community has to be involved with. So, verse 2, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body of the dead person to the neighboring towns. Then the elders of the town nearest the body, so whichever town the person was killed closest to, shall take a heifer or a young cow that has never been worked and never had a yoke, worn a yoke, and lead her down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted where there is a flowing stream. There in the valley, they are to afar the heifer. And afar, it's translated as break the neck of. And it's a, it's a weird... I, I was reading it this week and looking at it. and it, I mean, I, I, literally it means like break the neck of. But when you think about like a cow, even a cattle, that's, they have huge necks. Right? That's hard to... You know, and it, earlier it was uh, something that was done when a donkey was to be killed uh, rather than redeemed. It was said back, back in Leviticus you're to, or Exodus, you're to break its neck. We looked at that. And, and so the term, there's some mystery in what exactly it means because sometimes it, it may be related to a word that has to do with, with the mane of an animal and, and cutting or, or breaking the mane of an animal. So it, it may have to do with, we don't know exactly how this works. But it's not the same type of killing the animal that is done in the sacrificial rituals. That's the key. This is this, the killing of this animal happens, but it's not a sacrifice where the throat slid and then the blood is poured out. There's no altar here. There's no priests. This is not a sacrifice. This is this is something else, and it's a symbol. But it's just one of those that we just. I don't think we have the full understanding of what exactly the symbolism is. But you know, if somebody looked at our culture today and they saw two people, uh, you know, agreeing to sell property, yeah, I'm going to sell you this many acres out in the country, and, and one of them, they spit in their hand and they shake it, right? That would be really weird looking. And we wouldn't exactly know what's the symbolism there. But we would know, oh, they made a deal. They made a, a binding deal, you know. They, they spit in their hand and they shook hands. That's how, at least in more rural areas, sometimes things were done. So my point is there are these rituals that we, don't, we don't, may not know the symbolism of, but at least we see that there's something symbolic about what's happening. And that's what's going on with this, is, is, is the, the, the killing of this animal, however it was done, whatever afar, whatever breaking the neck means, the killing of this animal was done, and it was done in a valley with a flowing stream. This is not a wadi dry riverbed that was just uh, wet when there's rainwater. This was a, an actual, it had to be a valley where there was no cultivation. So this wasn't a farmland, this wasn't used land, this was wilderness land. And it was land that the stream was always flowing. Not just from rainfall or mountain runoff, but this was a, like a river. And they had to do it there. And then it says, uh, they lead there down to the valley, has not been plowed, where there's a flowing stream there in the valley that will break the heifer's neck. The priest, the sons of Levi, now the priest, shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister, to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord, and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer, who's been afar, whose neck has been broken, in the valley, and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, 
nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man, and the bloodshed will be atoned for. So you will purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So this is a case where there's this the communal thing and an animal, a, a young animal that has a, a heifer, a cow. And the cows are, the you know, we've talked about this before. They're kind of the workhorse uh, of the ancient world. They're, they're, the, they're at the top of the chain in terms of valuable livestock. And so one of these that hasn't been worked yet, it hasn't gotten any mileage out of it. It's at the beginning. It, it's, it's set to be a valuable commodity for this town. That has the, that's, its life is uh, taken in this valley. And then the, the symbolism of the water and the running stream, it may have to do with the washing of the hands, literally the bloodshed. Even though their hands were, were not technically guilty of killing the person, they as a community were communally guilty of being a community in which someone took the life of another. So the community as a whole, symbolized by the elders, is basically washing that guilt into and it's transferred into the animal and then washed with the flowing water out, eventually out to sea, uh, where it's, it's never seen again. It's similar to the image of uh, Yom Kippur, where the scapegoat, and they place the hand on the animal and pronounce the sins, and then the animal is led out into the wilderness where it sin, carries the sins of the people away. So there's something like that going on in this ritual that we don't exactly know, and we aren't exactly comfortable with, but we understand enough to know that this is a community ritual and that the community of the town nearest to where this murder happened is taking corporate responsibility and atoning for the bloodshed in the land that God has given them to possess. So there's a communal recognition of the seriousness of what's happened. And again, why this animal and not that animal? Why not at an altar? Why not at... At the end of the day, we don't, we don't know. I mean, there are theories, there are reasons. You can check the commentaries if you want to see. There are, there's a whole track in the uh, rabbinic writings on this ritual and what it symbolized and, and all kinds of discussion. But at the end of the day, it's just one of those things that it's a ritual and what we need to see is the principle behind the ritual, which is that this is a community coming together and taking responsibility for this murder that's happened in their midst in order to atone for it, or at least in order to atone for the community. Now, if the murderer was ever found, then all the other laws would apply, and that murderer would be put to death if somehow they were found and either they confessed or witnesses came forward later that were gone when it happened and said, oh, no, actually, I was there and I saw it, and however it worked. But the principle here is God does not want Israel, the land, to be a land of violence and bloodshed. There's, there's There's penalty Then it goes on, so it's talked about crime, just like last chapter. Now it's going to move back into when you go out against your enemies, just like the last chapter did. Chapter 20 began, when you go out to fight against your enemies. Now this part, verse 10, is going to say, when you go to war against your enemies. So it's back to the theme that last chapter was talking about. Deuteronomy weaves things together. It'll start with a theme, it'll talk about it a minute, then it'll jump to another theme, talk about it. Then it'll jump back to the thing that it was talking about earlier and talk about it some more. And so it's kind of like weaving in and out of these things as Moses is recounting the spirit of the law to this next generation of Israelites that are about to go into the land and live as his people. And they're about to go into war. Let's not forget, 
all last year, the book of Numbers, was God organizing a rabble of slaves into His fighting force. So these are military directions as well as civil directions. Don't just think of Israel as like us. You know, we just walking around and in the desert and then we're ready to go live in the land. No. Pretend like this is a military barracks and we're eating food all together in basic training. The, the, the mindset is going to be a little different than what it is for us. So keep that in mind when we're reading Scripture, when we're reading Torah. God's giving Israel, Moses is giving Israel their marching orders. So now we come to this. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives. Okay, this was the normal. This was normal in the ancient world. You go, you fight against the enemy. All the men of this garrison, this fort, this fortified encampment, which is what the Bible calls cities, they come out, you go to war, you fight. The women and children either stay in the city and like, you know, batten down the hatches or they flee out to the land and they're gone. But the rules of war in the ancient world were when you took a city or you fought and the winning army took the city, the winning army took the city. It was their city now. All the goods in it were their goods. All the cattle in it were their cattle. All the people in it were their people. They entered into the community. It wasn't this, okay, we beat you, now we're going to leave and you go back to living your own way. No. Winner take all. Now this is different for us today. This is actually illegal under international law today. You cannot, no country in the world can claim land through battle anymore under international law since World War II. So for us, we're already like, wait a minute, this is not right. But that's, again, this is ancient Near East. It was the norm. It was how you lived and how territories changed hands. So whether we like it or not, that is the reality that that these people were in. So all of that happens. You go, you attack a city, God gives it over. That's the way it describes winning. You take the captives. You don't slaughter them all unless they're the particular Canaanites that God's told Israel to, to devote as harem. But other enemies who are just attackers, who are enemies, aggressors, when you go in, you don't just slaughter everybody. No. You actually, they become part of your society. So the law here now is verse 11. After you've done this, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are, and NIV says attracted to her, but it's actually, uh, it's the word chashak, and it means to, to, to desire, but with the, with the, with the uh, connotation of, of a relational aspect. Not just, oh, she's fine, I'm going to take that. But like, it, put it this way, this word's used twice in Deuteronomy already, and it's the word that used to describe what God does to Israel. God says, it wasn't because you were the greatest of all the peoples that I desired you. And it uses that word, chashak. In chapter 7, verse 10, and in chapter 10, verse uh, 15, God uses this word. So this is not talking about already translation-wise, we need to clarify. It's not talking about like, oh, I, I see this woman, she's mine, I want to... It's deeper than that. It's deeper. It's, it's de- in the ancient world, that's how it worked. And in the modern world today, all over the world, when people attack armies, war is hell, and mostly because of all the stuff that comes along with it, including rape and genocide and, and just all of the terrible things that we read about that we see going on in the world. It was just like that in the ancient world, if not worse. But God's putting into the midst of that, this is what He says, if you see a beautiful woman and you desire her, and we'll just say desire because that's kind of a neutral word, you may take her as your wife. Not you may take her. Not you may ravish her. Not you. No, no, 
you may take her as your wife, but here's the stipulations. Verse 12, bring her into your home, have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. So all the marks of beauty, your nails, your hair, your clothes, and that, nothing's changed today, ladies. Those are still marks of beauty, hair, nail, and clothes. Get rid of those. Okay? Uh, After she's lived in your house and has mourned her father and mother, in other words, whether they died in the battle or whether it's just because now she's marrying into another family, for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. This is huge. This is monumental. Now, we look at this and go, this is terrible. This is like forced marriage. Sure. But in the ancient Near East when you were a a woman and your husband died in battle, it was assumed you were now the property of the winning army and you were going to be passed around. You were going to be sold into slavery. You were going to be raped. You were going to be used. That's just how it was. That's one of the reasons war is so horrible. And so into that context, God steps in and says, hey Israel, you know when you're doing this fighting stuff and you guys are, you know how it works you actually have responsibility now. If you choose, if you desire a woman, you got to marry her. you got to take her as your wife. you got to bring her into your household. And you got to wait a month before you can even engage in any physical intimacy. And you have to do it after she's been removed of all of her beauty status symbols and all of her pagan beauty status symbols especially. Shaved hair, cut nails, clothes. So while we read this and we see like the, uh, this is not good, again, from the perspective of the ancient Near East, looking at this, they would be like, what are you, crazy? This is ridiculous. We won the battle. She's mine. She's beautiful. I'm not going to make her shave her head. I'm not going to make her trim her nails. and get No, she's, I want what I want. And God's into this. He does this strange thing. And He says, nope. If you want it, this is how it's going to happen. So it's very weird. Now that's not, again, this is not to say, so therefore you should be great with this. You should be okay with this passage. No, because we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of Jesus who specifically elevated women above the status of the society of the day. So we look at this just as Jesus would look at this and we would go, God gave you this concession because of your hardness of heart. This is not how it was supposed to be in the beginning. And so into this fallen world of death and war and captivity, God even then puts in, pushes into the concept of covenant and marriage and, and protection even within this hellish uh, um, situation. This is what we see God doing. So again, does it make us love this? No, I don't like reading this. i got a mom and a sister. I, I hate the thought of any woman becoming captive and marrying somebody against their will. That's a granted. But if I were back in the ancient Near East where it happened and that was just life, I would look at this and go, oh, thank you. At least they're being cared for. They, they can't be used as a commodity. They actually have to... And look at this. This is the key. Verse 14. After all this, if you are not pleased with her... So the month has passed and the guy changes his mind. The heat of battle's over. Her beauty's gone. And he goes, okay, that was just kind of a... That was more infatuation rather than love. I, I, don't, I don't want this woman. I don't want to take her as a wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. So again, our context, we don't like it. 
that context, it's a step up. And that's what we see Scripture doing. Thank you, timekeepers. We're going to end it there. And it's a perfect ending time because the next section now is going to move into things having to do with what happens when there's marriage and family and household and how uh, God wants those to run. And then in the next chapter, again, there's going to be moral marriage, but there's also going to be some of these, what we see as just kind of um, uh, random commands. or, or It's going to, again, just... We're hacking through. Think of yourself. We're, we're going through the jungle. We're, we're making our path. We're trying to get to the treasure of the Gospel that we know is there eventually. But we've got to hack through some weeds and things. This is, that, this is what we're doing in this section. Because this is a difficult section because we're in unfamiliar territory. But we'll get there. Hang with us. Come back next week. And we'll see you then. Yes, yes. Next week we are meeting because if you're going to party on Labor Day, you should still have to be back at work on Tuesday. So we will meet next week. I'll see you then.